everybody. You can open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice, the Lord is King is the series uh, theme of Philippians. That is what we've been exploring. And I believe we have certainly cause for rejoicing as believers all the time in the redemption that we have and the promise of a restored and beautiful world which we will receive, but we also have cause for special rejoicing this morning as we consider the outcome of Friday's SCOTUS decision. Uh, who would have thought that we would see the end to Roe v. Wade? Um, and uh, we, we can thank God that He still works in this government, um, even if it sometimes looks like it's going slowly. But there is change, and we can pray for further change, even in our state. Last time we looked at chapter 4, verse 2 to 9, and we considered how the basic elements of Jewish piety, which is prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving with rejoicing, ought to relieve our anxiety and lead to joy, and particularly with the situation that the church faced surrounding Yodia and Syntyche. And we also noted how the second list of imperatives, those imperatives found in verses 8 to 9, were common lists of virtues that were found among the moral philosophers of the Greco-Roman world. And Paul used both the Jewish piety and the list of virtues that we find in that list um, to help the church to live out the identity of a heavenly citizenship in the present situation and the unity that they needed. But I mentioned then that we won't delve deeper into these lists because I thought they were self-explanatory, but upon further reflection, I have thought that perhaps we should just take a pause here and we will dive into these two lists separately. So this morning we're going to be looking at Philippians 4 verse 4 to 7, and the next time I preach we'll be looking at Philippians 4 verse 8 to 9. So let's read together from God's Word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, now grant us the joy of our salvation, the peace which comes from union with you through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is the mark of a Christian? I think we've addressed this before in previous sermons. The question is, what is the mark of a Christian? And there have been many good answers that have been proposed. For example, Francis Schaeffer uh, pointed out that love is what marks a Christian. After all, love is commanded by Christ. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Well, if we look at First John, who is the apostle of love, we will see that love is a prominent theme throughout uh, that epistle. 
And one of the most famous poems in all of history is Paul's love poem of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And there certainly, love is what marks a Christian. Andrew Murray has suggested that humility is the authentic mark of a Christian. And he draws his reflection from the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2 on the humility of Christ himself. And when you consider this Christ hymn, we will see that truly Christians are called to model Christ in the world, and truly humility is a key theme in the gospel narrative. And so Christians ought to be marked and shaped by humility. But what about joy? The Scriptures make it very clear that God's people are to be characterized by joy. The Psalms repeatedly command Israel to rejoice and have joy. For example, Psalm 14 verse 7, Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. That's all of Israel, all of the Jewish people, God's people, His covenant people. Psalm 100 verse 2, Serve the Lord with gladness. Or how about Psalm 32 verse 11? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And then Psalm 97 verse 12, from which Paul draws in this passage, to rejoice in the Lord, very simply stated, an imperative. Furthermore, Jesus commands us to be happy in the Beatitudes and concludes that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake should rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, once again drawing from the Psalms. And then, as we have repeatedly noted throughout Philippians, Paul, recalling the Psalms and Jesus' own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, commands the church to rejoice. And I will say it again, rejoice. It is very clear that God's people are to be characterized by joy. But sometimes we are faced with situations that rob us of our joy. And today we're going to take a little bit of a deeper look at the root of anxiety and the antidote that Paul prescribes to help restore the joy of our salvation to our troubled souls. So we'll consider our text in three parts. We'll look at the nature of anxiety first. Secondly, we'll look at the nurture of prayer And then we'll look at the never-ending peace that we have access to as believers. That is, the nature of anxiety, the nurture of prayer, and the never-ending peace. So let's turn to the first of this, the nature of anxiety. Anxiety is one of the most common struggles faced by humans across the globe. The Pew Research Center in a study conducted in March of 2021 found that 21% of Americans included in their study confessed to high levels of serious and dangerous anxiety. It is such a part of the human condition that Jesus dealt with it in his famous Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34. And Jesus' diagnosis here remains one of the most perceptive statements on the nature of anxiety ever recorded. Jesus searches out, what are people really anxious about? And there he understands that most people are anxious about what they will eat, what they will drink, and what they will wear, the basic necessities of the human condition. And then he says in verse 27, he asks this question, 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? (laughs) That's a remarkable question. Which of you, by being anxious, can add an extra hour to your life? In fact, we know that high levels of sustained anxiety can actually shorten a person's life. In a decades-long study published in 2015 by one of the leading medical journals for psychiatry, JAMA, they noted that sustained periods of depression and chronic anxiety can shorten a person's life by up to a decade. Now, that shouldn't make you even more anxious, right? <laughs> because it can. Oh, no, I'm anxious about what I will wear, what I will eat, what I will drink, and now I have to be worried about my anxiety shortening my life too. But it's true. Jesus is very perceptive. Long before the medical journals and drama and psychiatry, he said, who can add an hour to your life? But what is anxiety? From our text, I have deduced a simple explanation. And maybe I'm going to oversimplify it and people are going to be out there and saying, well, you know, that's what these preachers always do. They just oversimplify the very complicated natures of the human being and mind and psyche. But here's Here's the simple explanation that I find from the text. Anxiety is the absence of peace and the presence of chaos. Anxiety is the absence of peace and the presence of chaos. Now, I'm going to justify how I got there from our text. And I take this basically just from verse 7, if you look at that, which is Paul says here that that the, the culmination of this text in this little short paragraph is the restoration of the peace which surpasses all understanding to an anxious person. See, that's where he says, do not be anxious about anything. And in verse 7, he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is that the restoration of peace is how we overcome anxiety. So that's where I get my rationale from. Anxiety is the absence of of peace. And if peace is absent, what is present? It's chaos. That's the absence of peace. It's distortion. It's the feeling of lostness, of being overwhelmed. It's chaos. So let's take a look at this and unpack this definition a little. Now the word translated here for anxious in verse 6 is an interesting word. It is a word that describes a mind that is fixated on something. And it can be either used in the positive or the negative in Scripture. In the positive, it could describe meditation on Scripture or thoughtful care for other people. Uh, We are commanded to put others before ourselves, for example, in chapter 2. But it also describes meditation itself. In fact, it described the philosophers of the ancient world in the Greco-Roman period because they studied their philosophy and were fixated on their particular field. So, in the positive, it is a mind fixated in meditation or thoughtful care on a certain object or a philosophy or a thought or a doctrine. But in the negative, it describes a mind in turmoil. It is a mind that is fixated on the negative, on concerns, on fears. And this is exactly what anxiety does. It doesn't 
relieve your mind from the things that you're afraid about, right? This is why often people with anxiety will wake up in the middle of the night and their heart will be racing. They'll be having a panic attack because they are so fixated upon it that they can't even get rest in their sleep. I'm sure at one point in your lives you've experienced this. I know I've experienced this very recently, where you wake up and your, your heart is racing and you can't get back to sleep. You are afraid of the future, perhaps afraid of your circumstances, afraid of providing for your family, afraid of just life itself. And so anxiety is a mind fixated on the negative. Psalm 42 verse 5 captures this beautifully. I love Psalm 42, when I, especially when I'm always down and need a little encouragement, I turn to Psalm 42 because it never ends in the hope of, it doesn't end with much hope. It just ends in this kind of basic despair statement. But it captures the this idea of a mind fixated on the negative very beautifully, when the psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? The turmoil, right? That restlessness. This term, in turmoil, is a word that describes the churning over of the waters of a river that is restless and without peace. It generally refers to a restless person in pursuit of wealth in the Scriptures or the fearful person who is anxious about the future. And it's that churning over, that restlessness, that you can't get peace in your situation. But what is truly interesting when we consider the turmoil and chaos that anxiety produces in the human soul and mind is how Scripture grounds our confidence, not in psychological method or in Eastern mystical meditation, but rather in the God who subdues the chaos at the creation account. That's where Psalm 42 goes to. It's really interesting. Now, what does it mean to go back? You have to understand a little bit of a background in Genesis chapter 1 to 2 to understand what God does in the beginning of the creation account to get what I'm going to say here. So I'm going to go back to Genesis 1 verse 1 to 2, which is the building blocks for the Bible right there. This is, this is where we start as believers, is in Genesis chapter 1, the first two verses. And in the first two verses, we find here, we find that the Spirit of God is brooding over the waters, the, as the Hebrew calls it, the empty and formless world, the chaos, as we call it. There, right in the beginning, the Spirit of God is brooding over the chaos. And what does He do? He brings life from nothing. He subdues the chaos with creation. And the psalmist here in this Psalm 42 turns the attention of Israel, to whom it's written, to God here in the creation account. How does he do that? Well, in Psalm 42 verse 5, when he says, hope in God, he uses the same language that's used in Genesis 1 verse 1 and 2 for God, Elohim. He doesn't use the covenant name of God, Yahweh. 
He goes back to that original expression of God, which is in the plural Elohim. It could be generic of many gods, but it's interesting that to bring his confidence back in the God that he has hope in, he uses the same term that found in the creation account, not in the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, not in that name. And I believe he does that on purpose when he's considering the chaos within his own soul. Most of the commentators in that psalm think that he's standing by the River Jordan at the time of writing and or reflecting upon the River Jordan because he's speaking about the waters and he's speaking and referencing Jordan in, in the psalm itself. And so perhaps he is standing here at the banks of the great Jordan River when he recalls the God who subdues the chaos of creation and he hopes in this God, the creator God, who is able to subdue the chaos of his own soul. <laughs> That's what he is hoping in. If God can subdue the chaos in creation, He can bring peace to the turbulence that's within me. If He can bring life out of nothing, He can raise me up from despair. You see, this is where we have to turn to when we're going through periods of great despair and anxiety. And this is why I love going back to that psalm, because that psalm reflects on the God of creation. In fact, the psalmist says in verse 7, as deep calls to deep, probably referencing the deep river Jordan and comparing it to the initial formless water put in the beginning of creation. And right there, as his soul is in this turbulence, churning over rivers of water, and he feels lost, and as if he's sinking beneath these deep waters, he recalls that God himself will bring dry land out from this place. And that's what anxiety is. It's this feeling of being overwhelmed, being in chaos, having no peace, being swallowed up by waters, and so it's from this depth of his soul that the psalmist cries out. That's why I say anxiety is the absence of peace and the presence of chaos. But how do we overcome it? What do we do in order to overcome our feeling of despair? Well, here we see the nurture of prayer. That's where Paul goes to the nurture of prayer. See, not only does the creation account reveal God creating order from chaos and bringing peace to a turbulent environment, it also shows God creating human beings as His image-bearing creatures. Creation shows us that too. And because we are created in His image, we are given the task and therefore the tools to continually fight back the chaos and so keep the order and peace that was created at the beginning. Adam and Eve was given these tools. For example, Genesis 1 verse 28, to 28 reveals God's mandate to humanity when it says God created man in his own image. In verse 27, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female created them. And he, he gives them a mandate and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. You see that, that subduing the chaos itself is, is part of what we are to do as the Imago Dei, the image-bearing creatures of God. We are being given the tools to continue to fight back the chaos that is always threatening the peace in the world. 
But we also know from the creation account that Genesis 3 looms like a dark cloud over this initial creation. And the fall comes. And what does the fall do? It disrupts the peace within the garden and chaos returns to the created order. But not only is this chaos in the external world, most importantly, this chaos enters into God's image-bearing creatures and disrupts the communion that we have with Him. That's really the, the worst part of the chaos, the fall. What does it bring? It brings this disruption of the perfect relationship we have with God Himself. And it is here that all sorts of sins and illnesses enter the world, including every anxiety known to man. This is where it begins. So how can peace and order be restored to our souls in the midst of the chaos is the question we should have. And the first and most necessary place to start is with redemption itself. You see, because of the fall, we are no longer at peace with God. We're at enmity within the Scripture says, as human beings. And if we are to have peace in our souls, we are to first find peace with Him. Now, there's a lot of ways in which you can find peace out there. And I have found that more often than not that if you can't find peace, that you can medicate it, right? You can numb it at least. But I would submit that the most fundamental reason for most of our anxieties is this restlessness that humanity has in their souls because they have no peace with God to begin with. The great church father Augustine said it. When he opens up his confessions, which is his reflections on his life, especially before conversion, leading to conversion, he says, my heart was restless until it found rest in thee, repose in thee. And, and, and that is the person who is honest with themselves. There's this restlessness in our hearts because we are in enmity with our Creator, and this peace needs to be restored. And that's what Romans 5 verse 1 to 2 is all about. It's about the gospel, and here we find where we can see the peace. Paul writes this in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, the grounds of our peace, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this is exactly what the psalmist can say in Psalm 42, hope in God. You see? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. We need restored fellowship with God through which we obtain peace with Him and by this, an ongoing fellowship with Him once again. But just because we have peace with God and restore fellowship with Him doesn't mean that our troubles are over. The psalmist, after all, is crying out here as a believer. This is for God's covenant people. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Or why are you in turmoil within me? This is the cry of a believer. I mean, he's saying, forcing himself, hope in God. He's like, why is something so wrong within me? What's going on in here when I have salvation? 
believers will continually face the effects of our fallen condition. And just like our parents in the garden were to continually subdue the chaos by cultivating the garden, we are to continually subdue the chaos in our own souls that comes from the fallen condition in which we find ourselves. We have to do that. And how do we do this? Well, we do this by nurturing prayer. This is where Paul turns to. He gives the believers the tools by which we are to subdue the chaos created by anxiety and so order our spiritual lives in a constantly volatile and hostile environment. He writes there, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There it is. You see, Paul is calling us to ground our turbulent, fallen natures in the stability of our restored fellowship with God. That's what he's calling us to do. And this is what prayer is. Prayer is the work of subduing the chaos in our souls. And I say work because that's exactly what it is. Now, it's not work that justifies us, right? But it is nonetheless hard work that we have to do as believers. It takes effort. It takes time. It takes motivation to be consistent. But it is how we fight for joy. You see, we continually subdue the chaos of our souls through the spiritual exercise of prayer. And this is particularly found in the language of the Psalms. The language of the Psalms. You know, there's a reason why Calvin would have only the Psalms sung in the congregations when he sparked the Reformation, because the Psalms is the language of God's people in prayer. The Psalms teach us how to express our deepest anguishes and sorrows and how to fight for joy when we feel as if we are consumed by the chaos. Consider once again Psalm 42, and this time in verse 8, which is the ray of hope among the dark clouds of despair. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love. That's His covenant love. Here He uses the name name of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. By day the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, commands His steadfast love, His covenant-keeping love. And at night His song is within me, a prayer to God of my life. You see that? This believer here is fighting for that joy. He reminds himself of the covenant-keeping love of God that he will never let him go. And he says, and at night, I have the song within me. I have this music of my soul that has to remind me. See, what most commentators recognize is that what Paul's doing here is grounding the Philippian church in the traditional form of Jewish piety, especially the piety of the Psalms, that which cultivates godliness and the pursuit of righteousness. And this is, in fact, where Paul begins a section. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, directly from the Psalms. And then he draws four words associated with prayer to describe to us kind of what prayer is. And it's interesting, he doesn't give us four words here to give us four forms of prayer. He's not trying to tell us about 
oh, you've got to pray this way when you're in this, this kind of despair or this kind of anxiety or this prayer will work for this. This is not superstition, folks. What he is, he's describing what prayer is in itself. He's describing prayer in its fullness. It is as if Paul is saying, prayer is made up of supplications with thanksgivings as you present your request before God. That's what prayer is. And we learn the fullness of these when we study the Psalms. But we must note, friends, that prayer is hard and honest work. (laughs) Sometimes I believe we struggle in our prayers because we believe they should always be what we believe to be reverent. And so we restrain ourselves from being honest in our prayers to God. (laughs) He knows every thought you have. Every thought you have. You can't fool him. And sometimes we try to fool him even in our prayers. I remember going on a run and feeling totally in despair and crying out and saying, what do you want from me? I just can't do this anymore. I'm a frail human being. I'm not divine. I'm weak. And I wasn't happy. I was angry. And you know what? I find a great use of the Psalms in those accounts. Sometimes there is this calling out, this crying out in the Psalter of why am I in this situation? That's why I love Psalm 42 so much because it doesn't end on a note of joy and happiness. It ends simply with why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. You see what He's doing? He's not out of despair yet. He's still in it. But he's urging himself to believe the truth. And that's where we've got to come to. Recognizing our frailty and that he alone is our hope. No one else can get us out of this. And notice he's not there yet. For I shall again praise him. It's a process. But it's something we ought to fight for. We ought to pursue joy because Christians are characterized by it. And we ought to pursue joy by cultivating joy through prayer. But what happens when I don't feel like praying? Have you been in that situation? I don't feel like praying. You know? You know, sometimes we go through seasons of prayerlessness. You know, there's times in which we can't find the words to express our heart's condition. We don't even want to. It just feels like prayer has no effect. Have you ever thought that? You know, in this very hard season, full of negativity, I'm going to get up early tomorrow morning and I'm going to be in prayer. And you get up, and it does nothing. You're like, that was a waste of my time. Going to go to work, I'm tired now. 
and I'm still miserable. Have you ever had that experience? And at times, we find it so incredibly hard to even find the motivation to get up in the morning. Let up, get up earlier to pray. Have you ever had that where you didn't, just don't want to get up at all? Remember I said that prayer is a work. It's work. You've got to work at it. And sometimes that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like it's just work. Just doing the thing. But here the Psalms are so helpful, especially during these seasons. And I encourage you, just reading a Psalm aloud when you cannot pray, disciplining yourself and getting up and opening up the Psalter and turning and just reading the words aloud. If that's nothing else you do, you can do that. Because those words give words to your own barren soul. That's what it does. And if I can urge you to because the word here referencing anxiety is a word that the mind's fixated on something, meditate on the psalm while you're there. Stick out at it. Don't just read it and go through it and go to work, but try and stick out at it for a little bit longer. And words will come. You see, that's how we fight back the weeds and the thorns that so threaten our soul and cultivate a life of prayer especially when we don't feel like it. I'll use a simple illustration to help out here. Running. Has anyone of you tried a running, sustained running for a period of time? I always try and get into running. I always get into hard points and saying, all right, now I'm going to run a marathon, and, and then I get lazy, right? But I, I find this illustration so true of running. You know, when you have an event like an upcoming half marathon or, or something like that, it takes work um, to, you know, run and train at it. And sometimes you just have to get up. You don't feel like running, but you're training for a marathon, right? Or a half marathon or, or a 10K or a 5K, something that you've booked and paid money for, and now you know you've got to get up and do it, all right? So you find the motivation to do it. But the hardest thing is to become a lifelong and consistent runner. Running in off-seasons, when there's no motivation, you haven't put money down and you're just trying to run, to remain fit and to remain healthy. Those are the times that I find myself giving up on running for a few weeks or something like that. And you know what? Then you have to get back into running when the season comes. And I always loathe getting back into a fit shape when the season comes. I get frustrated. Why didn't I just carry on through the winter on a treadmill or something like that? Why don't I just discipline myself? And you know, prayer is just like that. Sometimes when we go through despair and when we go through anxiety, it's like running in the off-season. It's not running for, a, you know, for the race that you have paid money for and you're going to discipline yourself to do it. It's running in the off-season. It's the hardest time to discipline yourself, but it's the most necessary time to do it. There are times when I've gone weeks without praying. My soul's become barren and dry. And I think this is where the psalmist was in Psalm 42. That's why he writes around the beginning, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. See, why does this psalmist write this here? Because God is not going to leave you if you're a believer. He's going to use his spirit within you to make your soul 
pant for him like a deer because you're going to dry up if you don't pray. And this is where we get to the last point, the never-ending peace that we have. The never-ending peace. You see, the psalmist here in Psalm 42, verse 2, asks the question, when shall I come and appear before God? When shall I come and appear before God? This could be referencing the old covenant system that that the temple was the location of God's presence, and therefore I need to get to the temple and I need to appear before Him there through the sacrificial system. Um, And perhaps that is what he's referencing, or perhaps he's just referencing in his own soul, when can I feel ready that I will be able to appear before him again? But Paul turns the Philippians here to the presence of God in Christ in chapter 4, verse 5, when he writes this. Remember, we looked at it last week. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then he says, the Lord is at hand. A very key little phrase in this whole thing before it gets into anxiety. Quite literally, it can be translated as, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. That little term there is often used of the second coming of Christ. Christ's coming is near. It's imminent. It's right here. It's on the doorstep. Be ready. Be prepared. But in this context, Paul is probably also meaning that he's near by his Spirit. He's meaning both here, right? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone because the Lord is near. He's about to return. But do not be anxious about anything because He is near to you. You have access to Him. You see, Paul wants his readers to rejoice in the Lord always and then grounds the rejoicing in the fact that Christ is near in two ways. He's about to return and restore the whole world But he is near because he's redeemed you, and you are his, especially as God's people. He's accessible because of Christ. And this is where Paul turns to in verse 7, this accessibility of God's peace. You see, here he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, how do we know when the chaos has been subdued? God's peace returns to us. And what is this peace? Well, it's His presence. It's knowing that He's here. It's believing that He's present uniquely by His Spirit. It's His Spirit hovering over the the, the waters of the deep in the beginning of creation and bringing life from it and, and, and con- casting back the chaos and bringing order to it. And he's doing that in your soul when he enters into you as a believer in a regeneration. He casts away the chaos. And he continually does that. As you return in prayer to him, his peace returns, that feeling of peace. And it's not because he's left you, but it's generally because you have stopped believing and the promises. He is near. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in his message. He says here on this passage, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. You see, 
A sense of God's wholeness, that's what his peace is, redeeming the whole of you, mind, body, and soul, the wholeness of you, the whole person redeemed. And everything will come together for good, and that will settle you down. I find it so fascinating how he connects this passage with Romans 8 verse 28. You know, the great passage in Romans 8 is all about the Spirit living in the life of the believer. And Romans 8 verse 28 actually follows on from prayer. Romans 8 verse 26, Paul writes, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but then the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, we don't know what to pray at times, but the Spirit is interceding for us according to the will of God. And then Paul writes in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. This confidence that everything in my situation is working to my good and His glory is the confidence that Paul returns the believers to. You see, this is good theology. (laughs) That prayer is changing us because God is transforming us. He's teaching us how to trust Him more and more. But it's going to take work. going to take you actively involved in communion with Him. And you know what? The reason we return to communion with Him is because we have this peace that we have access to. Because we have been restored by Him. We have peace with God. And then we continue to access the peace in times of trials and tribulations. So friends, the scriptures are very clear. God's people are to be characterized by joy. We have been redeemed by God and therefore we are now at peace with Him and this alone should give us reasons for rejoicing. But the scriptures also recognize that God's people will face afflictions in this fallen condition that we are. You'll go through times of dryness and trials. As thorns and thistles grow on this earth, so will thorns and thistles grow in the souls of God's people. The chaos will return. You'll have to fight it back. And our text teaches us three things. Firstly, anxiety is real. And it robs God's people of the joy of their salvation. It's real. Anxiety is the absence of peace and the presence of chaos. And everyone goes through it at one point and another, sometimes for sustained periods. Secondly, prayer is the means that God uses to help us subdue the chaos in our souls so that God's peace may bring us to a place of rejoicing again. Prayer is the means that He uses. It's that communion that we share with Him. Excellent book is by John Owen, Communion with God. Get it? or communion with the triune God, like Kelly Capic and Justin Taylor, who's renewed Owen's work. It's communion. You have communion because he has redeemed you and given you his spirit. And thirdly, God's peace is accessible because he is near in multiple ways. He's near, he's about to restore the world, but he's near by his spirit. He is present. And where his presence is, peace reigns. If he's redeemed you, you have peace. 
but we need to be reminded of through the gospel. He is at work in and among you for his good pleasure, Paul says. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So I want to ask you as we conclude, do you have anxiety? When last did you pray? And do you believe that God is near? If you can say yes to all these three things, I'm anxious. I'm struggling with prayer, but I believe God's presence, his peace is near. Let's pray. Father, grant us now by your spirit, through your grace, the peace that comes from knowing you, a peculiar peace, a peace that transcends our understanding, a peace that belongs to God's people in a unique way because we have peace with you. And out of this peace, we recognize that the world and its turmoil and the chaos that is all around us can't shake this peace that we have. And from this knowledge, from this good doctrine, this theology grounded in who you are, we're able to gain peace when the thorns and thistles grow in our souls. Help us to fight them back through prayer. Help us to get around one another when we struggle with prayer. To pray together and return the joy of our salvation, the joy which characterizes all believers because We have been saved. We pray this in Christ's name to his glory. Amen.